Welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcast. This is Cam, your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, a part of Stroke Focus. Today, we're going to be interviewing George Scola, um, and he's a stroke survivor. Many years ago, uh, his stroke disrupted his thriving career in finance, and undeterred, he started the Stroke Survivors Foundation to champion the cause for stroke survivors. He now also serves on the board of the World Stroke Organization. George has long held the vision that post-discharge support is crucial to stroke survivors and a better stroke care. He is now working with Stroke Focus to roll out a PDSS program in South Africa. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a post-discharge stroke support program. Hey, George. I want to know, when did you have your stroke? 2008. Yeah, I was 37 years old. And uh, it was a Saturday morning. I was busy moving home. And uh, when I tell my story, I normally tell people that I've found a very good way to get out of moving your home. Yeah. You have a stroke, and then you go to hospital. All yeah. your stuff gets moved for you. And when you leave hospital and get discharged, you go into a new place, and everything's there. So, yeah, I found a yeah. solution to the headache of moving home. Yeah, we we all know that that's not the perfect way to do it. But <laughs> yeah, thinking back, I'm sure there, there, there are better ways. On the other hand, I always talk about seeing the humor in everything, and that's that's a good way to look at it. So tell us about your stroke. What kind of stroke did you have? What was that like, and what was your recovery like? Okay, so um, I had an ischemic stroke which was caused um, because I, I have thick blood, which uh, there is a medical term, but I don't think we need to go into that. Um, I was not aware that I had thick blood. Um, in fact, I wasn't aware that thick blood was even um, possible. And the opposite, obviously, some people have thin blood. Um, so, yeah, so... It's a, like I said, it, it was a Saturday morning, and next minute I felt a bit dizzy. I leaned up against the wall, I dropped down to my haunches, and then I couldn't move my arm. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'll just fall to the side, and then my leg wasn't moving as well. So, yeah, <clears throat> cut a long story short, um, I couldn't speak. Well, I thought I was speaking, but all that was coming out of my mouth was just garbage. Um, so within half an hour, I was in an ambulance, being transported to hospital. And um, in that ambulance, I was thinking to myself, okay, so you're not in pain and you're not bleeding. What is going on here? Because I had no idea what a stroke was. So... That's when I started getting concerned because I was thinking, why am I in an ambulance if I'm not bleeding and not in pain? You know, ended up in hospital. Um, within, I think, two or three hours, I, I received a TPA injection. Um, 
And then, yeah, proceeded to spend two months in rehab. And I had to learn, uh, you know, how to talk, how to... Uh, I learned to write left-handed because my right side was affected. Um, one thing that stood out for me was that sitting with my occupational therapist, uh, the one day she asked me, what is one plus one? And immediately I realized I didn't know the answer. So I tried to stall for time while I searched for an answer. And uh, I said, I've known that since I was three years old. What are you trying to prove? And she kept coming back and saying, so what is the answer? And I, uh, I, I didn't know the answer to that question. And that's when I really, uh, that scared me. Because something that I've known for such a long time, I couldn't answer. So that's when reality set in that, okay, I'm in for a bit of a fight here. So, yeah, that was two months in hospital. Um, I found myself at night time quite bored. And uh, I started getting into wheelchair races in the middle of the night with other stroke survivors who couldn't sleep. So, yeah, that was uh, trying times, but I'm a very positive thinking person, so I would always search for the positives in any situation, and that's where I would focus. Before you were in finance, did you have to change everything because you couldn't go back to what you did, or did you just decide your new goal was to start the Stroke Survivors Foundation. No, 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 not at all. Um, yes, I obviously wanted to get back into business because it was my own business. But I, I was kind of caught in a perfect storm because in 2008, the global markets collapsed and I was not in a position to react to that. So... Yeah, I didn't have the ability, and I think the most important reason, I didn't really care, because it wasn't priority in my life. So, yes, it, uh, you know, I'm sad now that I couldn't react and didn't try and, and fight for my business, but I had no fight in me, especially for a business that, you know what, I'll, I can replace that one day. Which, by the way, I haven't. But, uh, yeah, it was just within 10 months of my discharge from hospital, uh, I lost my business and I got divorced. So, again, thinking positively, I said, okay, so you've become disabled, you've lost your business, and you've divorced. So those are kind of three big issues in one's life. So let's turn that into positive. I thought... If I don't want to deal with the one, that's fine. I've got two other issues to deal with. And that's how I kind of navigated my way through all three. Um, you know, on one day I'd wake up and say, right, my, my business, how are we going to earn, how are we going to get income? Uh, and if I didn't want to deal with that, deal with my wife, ex-wife. You know, I, I kept finding ways and solutions to to 
whatever problems uh, confronted me. And that's just the way I am. You know, if there's a brick wall in front of me, I'll find a way to go over it, under it, around it, or through it. Whichever one works. And that's, that's a good way of looking at it. You, you have to, uh, at this time in our lives when we've had a stroke, you have to kind of reinvent yourself. Some can do it fairly quickly. Others, it takes a while. The unfortunate part is, like you, you lost your business. Some of us lose our jobs, and and that's hard. But then in the middle of all of that, you also got divorced. And that's those are like three huge life events in a year, just about. So I'm glad you chose to deal with that in a positive way. In this time, at some point, you decided to start the Stroke Survivors Foundation. Correct. What what were you envisioning when you first started working on this? Yeah, while I was going through all these uh, traumas, I searched for support groups. And um, the only one I found was the, the... Heart and Stroke Association or Heart and Stroke Foundation in South Africa. So I attended one of their support groups. It's called Mended Hearts, if I recall. And um, it, it didn't assist with my dynamic because I was the youngest stroke survivor there. So here I am sitting with 16, 17 year old people, and the issues that I needed addressing weren't being addressed. So in your 30s, you still got 40 years to live. So you know, I still need to have a life. And um, anyway, I went to the CEO of the Heart and Stroke, and uh, I said to him, yeah, I'm not getting the support I need. So let me start the Young Stroke Support Group. And they didn't accept my offer and, and uh, rejected it. So that left me no option. Um, and I thought, well, yeah, I, I can't be the only young stroke survivor in South Africa. So obviously I went on Facebook and Internet and spoke to whoever I could to, uh, to locate other young stroke survivors. And I found um, a young lady. Her name was Charlene Murray. Uh, she was 31 years old, a single mother. So, yes, we were both in our 30s, but our dynamics were different. You know, she's the mother of a, of, a, of a baby child. So she needs a, a kind of a different support to what I required. So, you know, we, we spoke for a while, and uh, we started the Stroke Survivor Foundation. And... Uh, the initial aim of that was to provide support and a platform where we could share our, our emotions and our feelings and what was frustrating us. Um, I think at that stage, that's when I started learning about the stages of grief, which, you know, early in my stroke days, I had no idea about the stages of grief because I did find myself um, depressed. And that's not my nature. That's not normal. So I thought, well, why are you depressed? So, yeah, learning about the stages of grief, it's fine to be depressed. It's part of the process. 
that you've got to go through. And if people don't know about that, they get stuck in, in being depressed and angry, and they don't pro proceed past that um, because they're not aware of it. So they accept being depressed. So yeah, that's, I found that quite interesting. And just the, the awareness of those stages of grief immediately opens the minds to stroke survivors that didn't know that that process exists. And it also helps the family understand what they're going through. Because the family also needs support. Yes, right. I, had, I had the stroke, but the impact is on my family. Because once you discharge, in hospital, you've got everyone doing everything for you. Okay? It's when you get discharged that everything collapses. Because now somebody has got to take care of you, and they have no idea. Because... They don't get the, the correct or appropriate information from the therapist, from the hospital, the doctors. Um, right. In South Africa, a lot of people leave hospital and they don't even know what kind of stroke they had. So there's a huge breakdown in the, the discharge yeah, from when you leave that hospital. So that's why... PDSS is so crucial. It's all about that information. Absolutely, and I think that actually that happens here sometimes. Most of us can't go home and do everything. You are so on point with all of this. I love it. So you started the Stroke Survivors Foundation. When about was that? 2010. And then the first project to raise awareness for the foundation, uh, to raise awareness for stroke, and also to raise money for the foundation, um, I decided to take on a project that no one would expect a disabled person um, or a stroke survivor. Because when I was discharged from hospital, I was still in a wheelchair. And when I moved, went into the new apartment, I was on the third story, a block of flats, apartment. And there were 28 stairs that I had to climb, which I did on my butt, each and every step. So from that person, what do you least expect that person to do? So I thought, okay, well, let me walk across South Africa. So I started at the most northern uh, border post, and I traversed South Africa, which is two and a half thousand kilometers, which is probably about 2,000 miles that I walked. It took me six and a half months. But the reason I did that, besides raising awareness and all of that, was to prove that there is life post-stroke. So, yes, we may not like all the options that we faced with, but it's still up to us to decide which way to react. So I just found it a, a way to, uh, I suppose, motivate other strokes around us, that it's up to you to take charge of the situation you're in. And you can't just sit back and say, well, I'm beaten... Maybe just in front of the TV and just fade away for the rest of my life. 
Do you still have pity parties every once in a while? I do, I do. Um, okay. And But yet I also have periods where I exceed my expectations. So, yes, you have your highs and your lows. Yeah, so I, I allow myself when I'm feeling that pity come on to have a pity party. But it only I, I put a time limit on it. It's a day. It's a couple of hours. It's, you know, it's never a week. I've never gone a week. It's usually a day, you know, and I sit in front of Netflix, eat crappy food, and, and then move on. So anyway. I think what, what is important to say is that no two strokes are the same. Absolutely. So each person will have different dynamics. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you to find your way through that. Yes, we can give them a whole a bunch of ways to, to navigate and, and make your way through it and, and tools to help. But you, you've got to accept that, like we said, you've got your bad days and your good days. Right. And if you want to cry, cry. Mm-hmm. There's not, nothing wrong with that. Um, but yes, you're right. In, you know, a lot of stuff to be done, but... If it's going on five years, well, then I think you've got a problem. <laughs> what is it like in South Africa? What are you looking at there? It sounds like there is stroke support, but it may be mostly for older adults rather than those who are uh, 50-ish maybe and younger. If I break it down to the most basic way to explain this, there's two forms of healthcare. You've got your private and then your state healthcare. So your private healthcare, that's world class. You get the best doctors, the best treatments, the best rehab. Um, and because you have health insurance, you'll get to spend two months or eight weeks in the hospital. So your chances of recovering are a lot greater than somebody who ends up in a state hospital because if you unfortunate, they'll discharge you after three days. Okay. Now, what chance do you stand of recovering when you've had three days treatment? You've had no rehab. No yeah. one's explained how, what exercises to do. They probably discharge you and don't even chat with your family. So, having those two scenarios, there's a big swing in the kind of support that exists. The minute you leave that hospital, there's no contact with any support groups. There's no information provided as to how to get in touch with them. So, you left your own devices. And if you're lucky in your neighborhood or your suburb, you've met another stroke survivor that may know of a support group. If that doesn't happen, then you have no future. And then there's another big issue in South Africa. There's a big belief in witchcraft. So if you've had a stroke, they believe you are bewitched. And then nobody wants to come near you. So, and I saw that first time, and that's when I, when I learned about it during my walk, because I, I would go and visit stroke survivors in their homes or in clinics. And um, the one guy I met, 
in his home. He was sitting on a couch in the corner of a shack. And he was just fading away. He was dirty. He was drooling. Um, the family didn't want to take care of him. And that broke my heart. And I said, why aren't you guys looking after him? He's your family. He's, he's your father. And they said, no, no, no. He's bewitched. So we've got to contend with that issue as well. Gosh, yeah. I, just, I am just horrified by that. It makes me so sad. I don't understand how they could think that was... The one person said to me, she said, no, we can go to a witch, witch doctor and we'll pay uh, 50 cents US and we can buy a stroke for somebody else. So if, if, you might, my, if I don't like you and you're my enemy, I can go to a witch doctor and buy a stroke for you. Now, how do you comprehend that? And the, the belief is there. Oh, my gosh. There's yeah. a lot that needs to, uh, a lot of awareness that needs to be created. And, you know, you've got to challenge the myths that exist. Right. Um, and that is something that we do uh, in our talks and uh, the campaigns that we run. But that's a, a slow process. Um, but you've got to start somewhere. Yeah. And so I'm assuming that's one of the huge challenges in South Africa um, is doing, as you said, the, trying to get rid of the myths and the witchcraft part of it and, and things. But what are some of the other challenges, maybe? Okay, so a big, a big issue is the lack of transport. So that person that we uh, that I mentioned earlier on that after three days they're sent home. Chances are he or they require a wheelchair because they can't walk. Now, there's no way they're going to get any transport because they're in a wheelchair. So in South Africa, um, the masters use, a, we call it a taxi, which is like a minivan uh, that load up 15 people and that's the mode of transport. Now, that taxi is not going to stop for them. Because firstly, they've got to stop the taxi, get out, the driver's got to get out, and help you get into the taxi, load up your wheelchair. And that's, firstly, they lose time. Secondly, your wheelchair is taking up one or two spaces on the taxi. So you're costing more money. So transport is an issue. I'm not going to say it because I, I've seen it with the, the World Stroke Organization, complete lack of funding. The Stroke Survivor Foundation, we do not receive a single cent from the government. Social workers, and um, I was speaking to Sarah from uh, World Stroke Organization, and uh, the one day she said to me, she explained what happens in the UK. And she said, you know, before you are discharged in the UK, they send a team to your home and they do a, a scan of your, your house and what infrastructure they need to put in. So if you need a rail put into your bath, they contact the department of whatever it's called where they will come out and put up a rail for you. She said, don't you have that in South Africa? 
I said, okay, we've got to take this a couple of ste- steps back. In South Africa, you're assuming that everyone has a bathroom in their homes, and they don't. So now, if they live in a tin shack, what are you going to do to help them? You're going to go to the tin shack and put in a rail. To what? So, uh, that infrastructure is lacking. And there's all those kind of hurdles that we, deal, that we have to deal with that don't exist in, in the first world countries. And that takes money. Because how is that guy going to get his wheelchair through the muddy streets? So, yeah, right. that's, that's quite complicated. Uh, no kidding. That is something that I had not even thought about. Um, now, I didn't have anybody come to my house and tell me what I needed, but I knew that I needed bars in the bathroom and, and things like that. And so I, I handled it. I got them, and I had somebody install them and things like that. Um, and who, pay, who paid for it? Me. I paid for it. I, there was no money from the government or from my insurance or, or whatever. You know, my walker at the time was paid for by insurance, but again, I'm assuming that in South Africa, for people like you were just discussing, that they can't even get that kind of help because they either don't have the money, they don't have the insurance, or the government's not going to pay for it. You know, I feel very fortunate right now in, in everything that I have had, even if I had to pay for some of it, uh, even some of my post-discharge things that I've done, um, I've had to pay for out of my pocket because insurance wouldn't pay for it. So um, I have a lot of sympathy there for those that uh, struggle with that. I guess in all of this, what is your more immediate vision for post-discharge support? Yeah, like, like I've explained, it's a very complex solution that we're trying to find because we've got to take care of the haves and the have-nots and provide support and care for them. So the haves becomes easier. It's an easier process because um, there all you have to essentially give them is a shoulder to cry on. Okay? As with the have-nots, there's a lot more required to get right. them up to a level when they can start dealing with their own issues and their own emotions. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to go into a list and, and kind right. of grade the list according to priorities because, yeah, you take well, what you Yeah, I, I was going to say it's probably one of those things where you have this list and you are working on things, but number 10 may come in before number 1 and 3 may become, you know, number 10 and, you know, just different things like that. So you may never get the number one until the end, but exactly. you're working towards all these things at the same time. Yeah. Um, and whatever happens first, great, because, you know, it's, it's one step closer. 
but you take, um, your, you, you take any victory you can get. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. And so, you know, these are all huge challenges for you and your group. Um, are you making progress? Do you think is it starting to maybe some of it come together? Um, I, I, you know, I have to say I have to believe that I have made an impact. Okay. Um, there's a lot of people uh, we have helped, um, and there are some that we haven't been able to help. I've, I have to admit that defeat, um, just because we don't have the resources. So put the money aside, and the only reason we've achieved the successes we've had is because of our passion. For the last thing, I, if, I, if there's one thing I can do, is prevent people going through the same traumas that I went through. So if my wife and I had a support group we could attend, and my wife received support, and somebody told her, George will improve over time. She will get better. He's not going to be this mumbling, drooling person that you see now. Okay, that will improve over time. Um, so if I can prevent that from happening, then I'll consider that a victory. And, and that would be my, my goal. I know I can't help everyone, but if I can help 50% of the people, then, yeah, it's a job well done. Absolutely. That's a really good way to think about things because never can we help 100% of the people, but we have to be happy with those that we do touch. Talking about the investment in stroke care going to the acute stage, and there's not been enough attention to the post-discharge care, but it also sounds like, based on your economic place in society, that really there is no acute stage uh, for those who don't have insurance or those who don't have a way of paying for their care. And, and like you said, they could be thrown out of the hospital in, in three days with no information and no real information about what has happened to them. So I don't even know that, that at that point that there's that we can even comment on that because there's a group that does get better care and then there's a group that gets like no care. So um, in 2013 I was invited to be part of the work group and we created the Global Stroke Bill of Rights. Read through those, those Bill of Rights and see how many of those rights apply to the haves and how many apply to the have-nots. I think that will give you a better idea of what needs to be done. Okay. I think I can do that. Before we close out here, what would be your message to the audience? And obviously, I'm on, I'll speak from my experiences. Mm -hmm. um, there's three words I came to live by, uh, which took me a while to figure them out. <laughs> the 
is adapt, improvise, and prosper. So whatever hurdles you have, find a solution to deal with it. And it's got to come from within. It's up to you to do it. No one's going to help you. Um, yes, I can maybe show other people the way, but the effort's got to come from within. And, yeah, that's the... Uh, You're right. It has to come from deep within you, and you have to want to do this. You have to want to do the work, because not doing the work isn't going to get you there. The, one of the most common issues that you deal with it, uh, in the early stages of, of recovery is why me and why not you number one stroke doesn't discriminate stroke exactly. doesn't care who you are um, yeah. you know it does they don't care that you don't have any money that you have a lot of money that you're 10 20 30 110 it doesn't discriminate it, black, white, you know, Chinese, Japanese, there is no uh, reasoning as to why this happens to each one of us. But we can overcome. Uh, you know, a 14-year-old kid playing football, uh, uh, sorry, soccer, mm -hmm. okay, you explain to me what he's done so wrong in life that he has a stroke on the soccer field. Right. Come on. This, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a great yeah. So I do want to thank everybody for listening uh, today, and I want to thank you, George, for being with us. I think you're such a positive influence, and uh, I'm I'm happy that you're working towards better stroke care um, in South Africa. Just to having the support group for the younger people, because I know that even here, that's a huge problem. They go to a stroke support group and everybody's 60 plus makes it difficult because, like you said, our life is not the same. Uh, you know, we're trying to work or raise kids or getting married or, you know, whatever it is. So thank you. Different for dynamic. Yeah. So thank you for the positives on this. And so I'm going to leave everyone and, again, say thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hand in Hand show, a part of Stroke Focus. And I hope you've enjoyed our interview with George Scola today from South Africa. Have a Thank great you. day. See you on the radio. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Hand in Hand Show. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to keep the discussion going, please join Stroke Focus, the social media website dedicated to stroke survivors and caregivers. Stroke Focus is S-T-R-O-K-E-F-O-C-U-S. -E
Focus is a part of Valhalla, which in Mandarin means I have survived. If you wish to be a part of the show or would like to be interviewed as part of the show, please contact us at contact at strokefocus.net. 